This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money To Me. I'm Candace Burke. And I'm Felicity Thomas. Now Talk Money To Me is a podcast where we draw on our extensive expertise and experience to help educate you on all aspects of your financial landscape. Now today we have a very special guest back again to discuss his predictions for 2023 and reflect on the year that we've had. That's right, Felicity. So we were super excited to get back in the hot seat, Martin Crabb, as last time we sat down to have a chat with him about all things in the markets, he gave us and our listeners so many great nuggets and predictions which have all mostly come true throughout 2022. So he is our very first guest to come back into the hot seat for the second time and we were thinking, hey, this is such a fun episode and hopefully you're getting a lot of value out of it. Why don't we make this a yearly event in which we pick Martin's brains ahead of the new year for investors? That's it. Next year we can even ask the listeners to ask some questions. Now, if you haven't actually listened to the first episode, it's episode 19 with Martin Crabb, our CIO. So we suggest you go back and listen to it before this episode. What a year we've had. I mean, some people have called it the worst year in financial markets in a long time. However, if you actually look at Martin's flagship managed account, the Australian Equities Large Cap Core, which is your ASX 100, it's actually returned over this last year 9.74%. Yeah, pause for effect, Martin. Well done. We are virtually clapping you here on the podcast because as a portfolio, manager, you have killed it in a very tough market. If you're looking for a fantastic core Australian equities allocation, as Felicity said, to add to your portfolio, as always, guys, we'd love to hear from you. So please reach out to us and our team, which is the email address cftgroup at Partners with an S at the end for plural.com.au. That will be also listed in our show notes for you to reach out to us so we can have a discussion about your portfolio. As always, guys, as a reminder, our chat today is not considered personal advice, even though we are registered financial advisors at Shore and Partners, and Martin is the CIO also running a couple of portfolios here at Shore. As always, the podcast is general in nature, and before you make any of your investment decisions, you should seek your own professional appropriate advice. Now with that... Welcome, Martin. It's so good to have you back on the show. It's great to be back. Yeah, I can't believe it's a year. I know. What a year it's been, honestly. <laughs> yeah, it's the worst year ever. So one of the presentations I do, uh, I've got the comic book guy from The Simpsons who always says the worst the worst thing ever, worst superhero ever, and he says the worst year ever. So the equity market and the bond market are both down 20% this year. That's never happened before, Felicity, ever. That's insane. It's insane. Um, and it just had to happen in 2022 after we've had... COVID for two years yeah. and the market's already being so volatile. Yeah, bushfires, floods, COVID and the worst investment market of all time. Fantastic. What more could you want? At the end of 2021, you mentioned valuations were looking stretched 
and you were talking about if you had profits in the portfolio, let's take some risk off the table was your advice at the time. Go more defensive, add diversification where you can and think about adding inflation hedges to help protect the portfolio. So you were right, hence why we wanted to get you back on the show. Let's take a quick listen. Share prices are elevated, so that probably does set up a, a bit of a, a tougher 2022 or, a, or probably a lower return 2022 than we saw in 2021. So we need to shift to a more, not, not sort of defensive, but a more cautious stance. So saying, we've done really well, let's take some profits, let's diversify the portfolio. If we've got some gaps in our portfolio, let's make sure we've got those covered. And I think we need to start thinking a little bit more defensively within our equity portfolio. So think... Think about things that do well when inflation's starting to pick up or companies that are well positioned for, for higher prices. That's kind of how we need to think about things. So you nailed it on the head there. As you've also just outlined, you know, terrible year for equities and, and the credit market down, you know, 20% or so. So it's the worst year on record. So I guess looking back on the entire year as a whole, do you think we've now bottomed or is there more downside to come? Yeah, it's, it's really, really difficult to do these things you know, on a 12-month basis, we, as you know, we manage portfolios on a very dynamic basis. So we, we don't often look out, you know, 12 months and say what's going to be like. So these are always really challenging for for someone like a CIO like me. But but I think the um, the preconditions for getting, I suppose, constructive or bullish on on share markets and equity markets not quite there yet for me. I think the the parameters that we're looking for are, are you know. So global growth to stop slowing. So global growth still slowing, and we think that has implications for the earnings that underpin companies. So you know, basically, just think of a company as a as a as a profit um, number multiplied by some multiple of that profit. So as those profits are falling, the share prices tend to follow. So we see that probably bottoming out sometime in 2023. Not kind of sure when uh, specifically, but sometime maybe towards the middle of the year, maybe towards the second half of the year, we see probably growth starting to bottom out as as we realise that central banks have done enough. Uh, monetary tightening or interest rate hikes to slow down inflation. So, I think I think we've probably got a couple of choppy quarters, Candice, where we are seeing company profits under pressure, and we're starting to see some layoffs. It's already happening in the tech sector, but that maybe that broadens out, and and we'll get some really good buying opportunities in the in the first couple of quarters of next year. That's kind of my feeling at the moment. Okay, and layoffs and also hiring freezes, right? So we've definitely felt that in the last sort of three four months that we close out this year. So essentially you're agreeing with Earl Evans, one of our co-CEOs who, who pretty much wrapped up this year as it was a bumpy ride and keep your eyes open and very cautious as we head into 2023. And it sounds like sort of, you know, latter half of next year is when you're going to get more excited. Yeah. Look, as I said, Ken, it's really difficult to put your, your um, you know, put your, your finger on the date, but I think it's just kind of looking at a scenario and how a scenario unfolds. There's obviously a lot of wild cards in there, you know, geopolitical issue being the main among them with uh, who knows what, what's going to happen with Ukraine, whether that escalates or de-escalates, whether, you know, China's COVID policy continues and, and you know, if they don't reopen, then that's a big risk to global growth if they continue locking down their citizens and trying to control COVID. So there's quite a lot of moving parts. And then you've got, you know, you've always got elections and, and, and uh, political issues like the UK this year's been... Been a, been a basket case, for example. Very difficult to predict things like that happening in markets. But, yeah, so the, the narrative really is right. At some point, the central banks will have done enough 
um, damage, for want of a better term, to interest rates to cause a slowdown. The slowdown will happen next year. And as we know, markets tend to bottom before economies do um, because it's a forward-looking indicator. The share market is trying to predict sort of 12 to 18 months out. So we should see a better you know, a better condition starting in the second half of next year, I think. Let's hope so. Now, I know no one has a crystal ball. However, Martin, some could say yours is potentially better than some, especially listening to last year's episode. So some of the key themes that you actually predicted for 2022 to consider for everyone's portfolio was energy. You also talked about inflationary hedges such as transportation and infrastructure, noting that our Clearbridge fund actually has done very well, 9.5% for the year. You spoke about pricing power businesses and in particular you did like large cap luxury brands like LVMH, which has only pulled back, you know, about 2.15% year to date. Then you mentioned US banks like Morgan Stanley. And then the final one was gold, which was actually very interesting because year to date it's off about 8%. Now we know that it's rallied over about 15% in the last month. So could you tell us a little bit more why you think gold has pushed higher in the last month and how it hasn't kind of really been the inflationary hedge that everyone is so used to? Yeah, gold's really interesting. I I think of two two lenses to look at gold. One, one is the airbag lens. So most listeners would, would be familiar with you know airbags in cars and if you get into a nasty situation and have a crash, the airbags will inflate and, and they protect you. And gold's like that for your portfolio. So if there's a really nasty shock to your portfolio, think of the GFC or the COVID, you know, gold does really, really well. So it's kind of worth having it in the portfolio, just as an airbag. The second one is, as you mentioned, Felicity, is the um, is the inflationary hedge. So if you think of the cost of digging gold out of the ground, it's just going to keep going up over time because wages go up and fuel costs go up and, and equipment higher costs and all that sort of stuff. And even looking for it goes up in, in value. So that's why gold's an inflationary hedge because it, it's a real asset and it inflates over time. But there are times to own it and times not to own it. The, the real time to own it was 2020 and 2021 when we are we were coming out of COVID and clearly there was a lot of inflationary pressures building up because of the lockdowns. So a rapid a rapid recovering in demand and very constrained supply, you're going to get inflation. So gold moved ahead of that as as the I suppose it da- the reality dawned on people that we were going to have inflation. Gold had done its job and it's been sort of in a little bit of a downtrend since then. So sort of going forward, it's probably not as important to have it in your portfolio is an inflationary hedge because we think that inflationary expectations may have peaked. In fact, inflation may have peaked. There's the last couple of months we've seen a bit of a slowdown in some of the inflationary pressures in the US. It's still going to be there, but it may not be rising. So I think I think sort of having gold as a as a tactical uh, inflation hedge probably not needed as much as it was a year ago. So I think maybe that role's faded. But having said that, gold equities are in what we call the naughty corner, right? So if you look at stocks that are trading at their 52-week low and they're trading at a very low valuation relative to book value or fair value, they're all in the naughty corner. So you want to own mining stocks that sit in the naughty corner. And, you know, we've been doing that quite successfully at Shore for a number of years. You find the stocks that no one loves, 
that so that that yeah that no one loves that are, that are sitting in that bottom corner and gold sort of in there. So there's a bit of a trade in in gold equities, but I think gold itself, um, I'm not super bullish on the outlook for to be honest. And so gold equities, so like Northern Stars obviously rallied quite a bit, mm. and Newcrest Mining is doing quite well. Should investors potentially be taking some profits off the table, or do you think we have a little bit more of a run into 2023? Yeah, that 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 comes down to positioning, I think. I mean, if you think of gold equities as maybe two percent of the market so if you're a, a typical Aussie investor you might have a two percent weight in in the gold sector and you know you mentioned a couple of names there evolutions another one that, that we've been that we've been involved in so yeah if you've got a two or three percent weighting and that shot up to five or six because some of these stocks have done incredibly well I think evolutions up you know almost 50 percent from its lows so that that two or three is now four or five take it back to two or three that that makes a bit of sense. Yeah, definitely being prudent in this volatile market for sure. And I guess what is causing a lot of the volatility and uncertainty, like you've said, is the inflation figure. So although we have the official US inflation number to come out, I think next week, right, it is looking like the average figure that the US will end on is about 7.5% if you kind of average out the whole year. So you mentioned last time we sat down and put you in the hot seat that the February figure of 2022 you thought was going to come in around 7.5%. Let's take a listen. The official headline US inflation is 6.8%. And we know just from um, looking at history that we'll probably get 7.5% inflation in February next year because the the three months roll off that we're really low inflation and high inflation is going to roll in. So we're going to have 7.5% headline inflation in America and zero interest rates. So that's kind of very abnormal historically. So Martin, this is what I want to ask you. We're just around the corner from the US Federal Reserve uh, release date, the 13th of December. So what's the latest data and dot plot, you know, showing in terms of the US rates for 2023? What are we in for? Yeah, look, the, the big fear that, that everyone has is that inflation moves from being in the goods part of the economy to the services part of the economy. So we've had we've had goods price inflation. So we all go to the petrol station, fill up our car. So we, we see the, the goods inflation there. Um, but it hasn't it hasn't really flowed into services, and that's the wages part. So that's what everyone's freaking out about. If you go back to the 1970s, the uh, OPEC uh, oil crisis and the Yom Kippur War and all that sort of stuff, it caused this massive spike in fuel prices, and then it flowed into the into the services side of the economy via wages and rents and these other sticky things. That's the fear now because the labour markets are really, really tight. So what a lot of people are looking at, me included, is it's not the level of inflation that's become the primary issue. It's the composition of inflation. So things like rents, and anyone who rents a house will know, rents only ever go up, right? They never go down. And wages tend to go up and not down unless you're in our industry when they're all over the place. But um, but in in most people's experience, wages go up and rents go up, they never come down. So that's sticky inflation. And that's the the goods price inflation we're all having to struggle with. The higher electricity bills, the higher fuel costs, etc. We need a wage rise to pay for it. And then it gets into the system. So the number uh, on the 13th of December, I think it is in the US, um, it may be actually a little bit lower. It's the last couple of months have come down a bit from the peak in June. So it does look like this goods price inflation is coming out of the system. You know, there's lots of things you can look at real time. 
um, to look at, you know, inflationary pressures, things like freight rates and so forth, they're all coming down. But the concern is wages because the labour market is so tight and it's really tight here, right? You can't get workers. There's help wanted signs everywhere. Yeah. Um, because the labour market's really, really tight, that wage pressure is what we're looking at. So we see signs that services inflation, um, which is basically wages and, and service price inflation, and that's starting to pick up, that's that's where we start to get worried because that means the Federal Reserve and the RBA will have to have higher rates and they'll have to leave them there for longer. Yeah, so can I ask you a follow-up question on that? Because I feel like in the market there's this dislodgement of what actually is going on in terms of all the policy making to really cool off the economy and then the feelings and the sentiment that investors and consumers are having, spending their dollars at the groceries, filling up the pump and then looking at the stock portfolio. So let me ask you this question. You know, if, if, if the number is you know, kind of a bit softer on the 13th of December. Do you think that's going to be a breath of fresh air and we might kind of run into the end of Christmas as this, you know, Santa rally? Like, are we euphorically still kind of spending going into Christmas? But the reality is, like you said, it's a very different situation. So have we disconnected there? Yeah, it feels a little bit like we have because, I mean, it's, it's always difficult to read the, the the sentiment of consumers because, you know, we live in a little bit of a bubble here. We're in a, we're in a global city. Uh, tourists are coming back to Sydney. Restaurants are all packed. And so it kind of feels great. Um, and the spending data that's coming through, whether it's uh, the Visa, MasterCard data, or the ANZ card data. There's lots of data we get on a, on a weekly basis that show us spending habits. And everyone's, everyone's spending money. Um, but you look into next year and kind of go, well, you know, inflation's running at 7 or 8%. We've got, um, you know, petrol prices have gone through the roof. You, we know school fees will go up. They always do. We've got insurance <laughs> costs. They, all, they always go up. Um, and then we've got this mortgage uh, interest rate probably tripling from where it was, you know, a year or two ago. That's going to eat into consumption in a big way. It's going to take like somewhere between a 10 and 15% bite out of household budgets. Out a lot of, not all households, but a lot of households are going to have this big chunk taken out of their budget next year. So where's the spending that come from? I think the answer lies somewhere in the fact that there was over $250 billion of excess household savings that built up from you know, from 2020 all the way through to today because there was so much money being pumped into the system. A lot of people were getting assistance with a uh, JobKeeper program, but there was nothing to spend your money on. The You know, the typical Aussie might might travel overseas once every couple of years and spend, you know, 10 or 15 grand on a holiday. That money went into the bank. And so because you couldn't spend on money on travel and experiences and theatre and restaurants and stuff, the money's just built up. I think we're chewing into that. And it's a global phenomenon. It's not just here. The number in the US is probably two or three trillion dollars, right? So everyone's eating into this savings that they've built up. They're enjoying themselves for the first time in ages. They're traveling again, if you can get on a plane, that is. Um, <laughs> and I think once we chew through that money, Candace, I think that's when you'll start to see the reality of the fact that everyone's a little bit pessimistic on the outlook, but they're enjoying themselves while they've still got the savings. And and then I think that's probably why next year does look a little bit tough. That's right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, because you did say in our last episode, we had a lot of dry powder. Mm. So it seems like that could potentially be drying up, yeah. but not until after we've had our summer. Comparing uh, the Fed to Australia, what do you think the future is for the RBA cash rates? Because we kind of have pivoted a little bit from the US, obviously not increasing rates as high um, and as aggressively. So what are your thoughts there for next year? Yeah. Yeah, well, in um, we're recording this uh, just before the RBA decision on 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 Tuesday, so we're going to get we're going to get a, a twenty five basis point hike this afternoon. 
most likely. There is no, there's no RBA meeting in, in January, so the next RBA meeting is in February. Um, and obviously they'll have a bit more data to look at. We'll see how the Christmas trading period went because that's really, really important for the Australian economy. Um, and we may get another 25 basis points in, uh, in February. That's kind of where most economists think the RBA is going to stop. And the reason for that is the, the delay between when you increase rates or when you change rates and when it starts to impact people. And they think it's about a six to nine month lag, but there's no, there's no uh, true answer. It's kind of a, a little bit like touching and feeling. I mean, my analogy, Felicity, is um, uh, when I was a young, a young uh, analyst, I went up to the Pilbara in Western Australia and we went out to Dampier where they load the iron ore carriers and these big boats, they're massive, and they, they put hundreds of hundreds of thousands of tonnes of iron ore in them and then send them off to China or Japan, and they take about 25 kilometres to stop. So if you're driving that that boat, you need you can't wait till you see land. You've got to go, right, we're about 25 kilometres away, I'm going to hit the brakes, and hopefully you get it right, and it just smoothly comes into port, because if it's too late, you're going to destroy the thing, and if it's too early, you're going to stop it and have to start it again. So I think driving the Australian economy with interest rates a little bit like that. So they don't actually know where land is. They think it's out there somewhere. They don't know what level they need to get rates at. They don't know how long they need to leave them there and they don't know how much damage they're doing. So they're kind of, they want, I think they want to pause because unlike the US, most of us have floating rate mortgages. So as soon as the Reserve Bank puts rates up, at, at, you know, the next week the, or the next day, the bank puts its rates up and the next month your your uh, your mortgage payment goes up. The US is on fixed rate mortgages. They've got 30-year fixed rate mortgages. So they almost don't care. If you've locked 30-year rate in, it doesn't really matter what happens to the to the cash rate. Whereas in Australia, we've, A, we've got $2 trillion of housing debt, but a, a lot of it's rolling off from fixed to floating. So we're becoming more rate sensitive. And the Reserve Bank knows this. Um, particularly as we get into next year, the, the amount of um, debt that's rolling from fixed to floating is increasing at about 5% a month. So it's going to be more of an issue for next year. So I think everyone thinks the, the, the RBA is going to pause and just see what happens to rates. And I'm probably in that camp as well. Whereas the US, I think they're just going to keep going. We're, we've already got 4% rates in the US they're 2.85 here, I think that gap's going to continue to widen. Yeah, there's definitely been a few conversations around the floor about rates pausing. Look, I know I'm quite happy half my mortgage is at 2% and that doesn't come off till 2024, luckily. However, the other half is variable and I keep getting those letters in the mail every month. You've increased, you've increased, you've increased and it's quite depressing. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I took out a a mortgage to do a renovation and um, fortunately locked that in for 2024 as well. So uh, I don't want to think about what it looks like in 2024, Felicity. I'll just, I'll just put that to the, to, the, to the side for the moment. So using your freight boat analogy, I just love that. I want to do a bit of a game with you, if that's okay, Martin. So looking at the outlook for global interest rates globally, how quickly or not so quick central banks did react to inflation, let's ask you this question. How do you think most major developing economies fared in that game? of driving without seeing, you know, land about in 2022 to cool off the economy and maybe escape a recession or have a shallow recession in 2023. So we've kind of started with the US and Australia, but giving it a score out of 10 that they killed it and obviously one being a horrible job and it's inevitable, they're going into recession straight away. What do you think on the US effort so far? Yeah, uh, it's really difficult to put a score on that because... 
I think they do want to cause a recession. They can't come out and say that, but they need to create what they call slack in the labour market, which is code for millions of people losing their job, right? So that, that's what they want to do because historically the only way to slow down inflation when you've got a tight labour market is to, is to loosen the, the labour market. So that means, that means putting people out of work. So, you know, by, by doing that, a lot of people will see that as a policy failure and how can you deliberately put millions of people out of work? What are you doing? You're supposed to have maximum employment. But I think that's the only way they know that they can get inflation down. So at the moment, the jury's out a little bit on whether the Fed's been successful with that. Um, I think I'd give a very low score to the UK. That's just been an absolute disaster. The, the, <laughs> the, the Bank of England's way too, way too negative. And then they have a government that comes out and tries to do a stimulus package at a time when they're trying to rein in inflation and then and then 24 hours later reverse it and, and that's just been a disaster. So they get the UK gets a one from both the central <laughs> bank and the and the government um, and for and for Brexit in the first place, which was incredibly stupid thing to do, and they realise that now. Um, Australia's probably doing okay. Um, you know, I think I think we may avoid a recession, um, maybe not due to to. Um, to the RBA, but probably due to the, the federal government who's, who've realised that the labour shortage is the biggest issue. Yes, they're trying to tinker with gas prices and coal prices and stuff, but I think they understand that the, the tight labour market's the biggest issue. So they've ramped up immigration. So they've, they've lifted the cap to 200,000. They'll probably lift it again above that. So we're all of a sudden we're getting all these workers, which is exactly what we need to do. So I think Australia, maybe not the, the RBA, the RBA's done okay. Um, they've been gradual. They've, they haven't sort of tried to whack up rates too fast like the US has. Um, and, and they're, you know, even though Governor Lowe did apologise to the Australian people for setting expectations on interest rates so low that people took out mortgages they now can't afford, uh, he did apologise for that. But I think the way they're, they're handling the, the economy and interest rates and the path of interest rates, you know, prob- they're probably not as good as the Fed um, in terms of their messaging, but they're, they're okay at the moment. So big thumbs down for, um, for, the, for the, uh, the UK, probably a four or five for Australia, probably a five. Um, the, the interesting one's Japan. So Japan's done nothing to interest rates. They've just left them kind of at zero. Their long-term bond rate's kind of zero. Um, so they've said, we're not going to, we're not really, we don't really care about inflation. Um, they look at wage inflation in Japan and wages aren't moving. So they're just not fussed about it at all. So they're, I mean, their currency's gone to hell in a handbasket because you can get decent interest rates on every other currency in the world except the yen. So no one wants to own the yen. So the yen's depreciated massively, but there's no signs of wage inflation in Japan. So they just don't care. So they're interesting. I wouldn't give them a, like a 10, but, you know, at least they're, at least they're sticking to their guns and give them credit for that. And- and finally, Martin, I just would love to hear your thoughts on China. Yeah, well, China's obviously the most interesting um, uh, country in terms of the, the markets and the economy in, in Asia. Um, so, I mean, obviously, the, the the third war, so there's three wars going on. There's the Ukraine-Russia uh, conflict. There's the central banks fighting inflation. That's another war. And the third war is China against COVID. And I think, you know, we, we take a very Western spin on this and go, well, you just need to get all your... Um, you just need to get all your uh, population triple vaxxed um, and your healthcare system will take care of the rest. Well, that's a massive challenge in China. Firstly, the population's massive. It's, you know, it's over a billion people. Um, secondly, the healthcare infrastructure is not like a Western country. Maybe it is in the cities and along the seaboard, uh, Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen, places like that. 
do look a little bit like European cities in terms of their infrastructure. But once you get into the hinterland, it's it's third world stuff in China. It's like it's like sub-Saharan Africa. So they don't have the health infrastructure, and they've got an older. Uh, probably unhealthier population. There's a lot of smokers and a lot of respiratory issues with that. So I think China can't step away from zero COVID, even though we look at them and go, well, everyone else has opened up. Why don't you? I think their their health issues are quite specific and quite acute. Um, they've also got a vaccine that, that doesn't seem to be as effective. The Sinovax, most epidemiologists say, look, it's not as good as the mRNA stuff or the or the viral vector stuff that's coming out of um, you know coming out of the Western world. You should be using a different vaccine. So they've got a number of idiosyncratic industries around their health response, um, and that's going to make it difficult for them to open up. They will at some point because um, they'll get through it, like like China always does. It might just take them longer, um, but without China. Uh, you know, kicking into global growth, it does look pretty tricky next year. So we don't have China coming back online, um, even if the rest of the Western world, you know, starts to starts to stop slowing. Um, the global outlook doesn't look as good without China in it, for sure. Now, in a moment, we're going to be hearing more of Martin's thoughts on the travel sector for 2023. Does he still like it as a reopening trade or not? And we're going to be hearing his best ASX top 100 ideas for the new year. So stay tuned. You don't want to miss these investable ideas. You're going to hear it straight after this break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. All right, Martin, last time we had you in the hot seat and you quite rightly predicted the low-hanging fruit of the reopening trade, mainly travel to benefit. Now, in 2022, as consumers were keen to spend, their savings built up from the pandemic, you did mention Qantas. Now, that's actually rallied more than 20% this year. So that was an absolutely fantastic call. Now, do you think there is much more to go in the travel trade? And is there potentially any other easy, low-hanging fruits heading into 2023 for us? Yeah. I wish there were lots of low-hanging, easy low-hanging fruits. Where that's, they're the kind we like. They don't come along very often, do they? But travel's an no. interesting one because, I mean, the way I think about about portfolios is that I like to have um, exposure to themes. So one of the themes you want to have exposure to is is things get better than you think and, and maybe you want to have exposure to things being worse than you think. So you're kind of hedging hedging your portfolio to some respect. So I think I think uh, Qantas stands out amongst the ASX 100 is the, I suppose, the cleanest reopening um, uh, stock. I mean, there's, uh, there's other st- stocks outside the 100 that you can look at, but we, we, we tend to, well, I tend to focus on the ASX 100. So I think Qantas has still got some legs, um, but travel's not, um, you know, travel's not a, a, a one-stop shop. It's like there's, there's business travel, which I think, you know, probably will never return to where it was. 
It's a bit like, you know, people working in offices. I don't think we'll go back to the same level of people working in CBDs that we had pre-COVID. I think the world has changed forever and I think business travel has changed forever just because it's so much, it's so expensive to do right now. It's like $15,000 business class return to the to the, to the the UK and a, a friend of mine was quoted $30,000 to fly to the US business class, which is just crazy, right? So, um, and, and obviously there's the whole Zoom phenomenon. We can... We can communicate, you know, relatively, um, relatively fluidly uh, via via video conferencing and so forth. So I don't think business travel is ever going to go back to what I was. So then you got, you know, um, commuter traffic and um, and uh, and travel and travel and you know um, tourism and so forth. So will they ever return to where they were? I think people would like to, but again, the the uh, the airlines are really managing their their yield. So. Um, it's really bad time to be a customer of an airline. Um, I don't know if you uh, ladies have travelled at all recently, but I just did a sort of, um, you know, world Martin Crabbe's World Tour of Australia and uh, the amount of times I got bumped off flights and the flights were overbooked and everyone tried to do carry-on so there was no storage and it's just a dis- and everything's delayed and it's just a disaster. I feel sorry for the staff. So you want to own Qantas as an emotional hedge against being a customer because it's such a horrible experience being a customer but at least your shares are going up so you don't feel as bad, right? So um, so I think, I think Qantas has still come upgrades because they, they're expected to make a, a billion dollars for the year and they came out and said we're going to make one and a half billion in six months and then they upgraded that again. So I think Qantas is, is they're making out like bandits and there's probably more upside in the earnings definitely and the share price should follow. I think the easy money, if there's such a thing, has probably been made in Qantas but I think it's got a few more legs to go. But I'd, I'd be, be wary on the corporate travel space. There's a few stocks that are you know, leveraged to that. I'd just be a little bit cautious about them. Okay. Now, aside from travel, do you think there could potentially be some other low-hanging fruit heading into 2023? I mean, what kind of themes are you looking at? Yeah, the, the one that, that was probably two that stand out. One is one is around, you know, the path of interest rates, particularly longer term interest rates, and what that means for the valuation of what we call long duration stocks. So if you think, you know, tech, healthcare, th- these sorts of sectors, they've been absolutely poleaxed this year, some, some due to the fact that their earnings aren't as strong as we thought they were, but some just due to this PE compression. So people were paying 50 or 60 times earnings for really good quality growth stocks a year ago. They're now paying 20 and 30 times earnings. So companies are still the same, still making the same money. They're just the share prices have halved. So there's a couple of, uh, I suppose, issues around where we think longer-term interest rates go. If the central banks, you know, complete their tightening process in the first half to the middle of next year, which is where we're thinking a lot of people in the market are thinking, then longer-term bond yields should start coming down. We have a very inverted yield curve, which means cash rates are above long-term bond rates. That's not normal. Normally, you need a higher interest rate to invest longer term. So higher in, longer-term interest rates are higher than cash. At the moment, it's round the other way. So uh, we think those longer-term interest rates will start to fall as cash rates peak out. And that'll mean stocks that are long-duration uh, so I think quality growth stocks, technology, healthcare, they'll do really well. So I think that's that's where you want to um, hunt for your for your low hanging fruit. And the other area really is the soft landing scenario, or is a recession already priced in? So there's a group of stocks, and you know I'll give you some names. James Hardy's one, right? So James Hardy is a fibre cement producer. They're global. They've got Australian roots, but a lot of their earnings are in the US and Europe. 
um, and they're the market leader in in fibre cement manufacture. Now, most houses in America are clad by vinyl, not fibre cement. So fibre cement's a better cladding, but it's also much more energy intensive than using brick, for example. So if you think about a brick house, how much energy goes into making those bricks versus using uh, something like fibre cement, it's much more energy efficient. So it's kind of, it's, it's, even though cements also uses a lot of energy, it's a green play, if you like. It's an ESG play. That stock's down 60% this year because the US housing market's collapsed. Interest rates have gone up to over 7%. No one can afford to build a new house. So housing starts have collapsed and has taken James Hardy and every other US building stock down with it. So at some point, we think the economy bottoms out, interest rates peak out, and the market will anticipate a recovery in earnings in James Hardy. You can't see it at the moment. All you can see is it going down, but at some point that'll bottom out and start going up again, and the share market will probably move ahead of that. So it's really difficult to time that because we're talking about something, we buy it today, we leave it for a year. It might go down 20%. And then go up, right? So I'm not saying put all your money to James Hardy today. It's more about that's a stock that's been absolutely beaten up. It's down 60% this year. It could easily go back in the other direction at some point. So I think that it's a combination of it's a quality growth stock. It's trading at a very low PE. It's on about 13 times. It normally trades on 20, 25. So it's halved its PE, but also its earnings have halved as well. So you could get this this double whammy. So I think that if there is low-hanging fruit, and there, and there never is, it, there always is in hindsight, but I think those stocks that have been beaten up over their PE that also have some sort of cyclical pickup. So that that's certainly one stock I'd look at. Now we can look at high-quality growth tech and healthcare might come back into favour and potentially look at James Hardy, but do the dollar-cost averaging strategy that Candice and I always talk about on the podcast. But caveat here, right, Low- hanging fruit comes with also the falling catching knife. So it's really hard to slice and dice that fruit salad. Talking about, you know, trying to catch that falling knife. And one thing that I've kept my eye on throughout 2022 is the volatility in the foreign exchange market. You know, you mentioned the yen earlier. Uh, And one thing that us Aussies, if we do have a lot of savings at the moment, is we're looking at travel. So we're looking at the conversion rate. You also predicted that it was going to be a really tough time, and volatile year for the Aussie dollar. Let's take a quick listen. In the medium to longer term, I think sort of 70 cents uh, up to 75 cents is kind of a what seems like the correct trading range for it at the moment. But it is a little bit of a cork in the ocean, the Aussie dollar. So when everyone's ebullient and positive about world growth, everyone buys commodities and, and Aussie dollar. And so it, it rallies. And then when everyone's a little bit concerned about you know, slowdown in world growth or there's another variant outbreak or there's concerns about lockdown, everyone sells the Aussie dollar. So from a trading perspective, it's a very tricky thing to try to do. So, Martin, as we kind of round out the year, you know, that is pretty much the range that we look like. Again, who really knows? Anything can happen at a whim here. But, you know, you kind of nailed it, right? So it has been stuck in this. It did see two spouts of really um, intense volatility throughout the year. What's your I guess, thoughts on our Aussie dollar going into next year? Yeah, I mean, the bottom end of my range is probably a bit high. I think it it traded down to sort of 62, 63 cents at one stage. So maybe I should have set my my range a bit wider. Um, Look, again, really difficult to predict. There's there's quite a lot of moving parts with the dollar. The, The one that's really influenced it this year has been the interest rate differential. So the the difference between what you can get in US dollar bank account, what you can get in an Aussie dollar bank account. So that's now positive, you know, one and a half percent, which typically, you know, Aussie banks have to 
uh, offer better interest rates than US banks to attract money. So it's normally around the other way. So it's a little bit abnormal. And because US interest rates are that much higher than everywhere else in the world, like they're 4% higher than Japan, for example, the US dollar's just gone up against everything. So it's been the one, you know, positive uh, asset class that everyone's been on board uh, in the past four months has been the US dollar. That started to change now because other central banks are catching up to the Fed. The Fed's starting to talk about maybe tapering the increase rate of increase. So they've been going up by 0.75% every time. We've been going up by 0.25. So every every rate decision is 50 points higher for the US dollar. So that's been happening around the world. That is now looking like maybe pe- pe- uh, peaking out. So we'll probably see 5% US cash rates, Candice, and Australia will get up to three and a bit. And, the, and, you know, the UK will go up and the EU will go up, et cetera. And so those interest rate differentials will start to narrow and that'll take some pressure off the US dollar going up all the time. And so we're a derivative of that. So everyone looks at the US Aussie as, as, as a like a stock. We're, we're a second or third derivative. It's what the US dollar is doing more broadly that's important. And then in Australia, what's the outlook for rates here? You know, maybe they stop at, you know, low threes. And then we've got the economy and commodity prices iron ore, coal. So they've been really, really strong. Iron ore and coal, iron ore in particular, has had a, a really strong run of late and coal prices are probably three or four times their their long-term historical average. And then we've got the whole agriculture thing. The ABES crop report this morning upgraded the crop again, um, massive amount of uh, money coming to the farming sector. So all the stuff we sell is doing really, really well in global markets. And again, that's positive for the currency. So you've got this you know, there's different forces that are at work and it's difficult to see how they play out next year. So that's why most people say, look, round about here, sort of high 60s, low 70s, feels like the right level. It's not too hot, not too cold, but we're a cork in an ocean um, and we, you know, we will go up and down a lot on the back of sentiment around the US dollar and also what's happening in China. Like if China looks like it's coming out of its lockdown, then you can imagine the Aussie dollar and other uh, commodity-sensitive currencies like the New Zealand dollar, the South African rand, the the Norwegian krona, all those commodity-based currencies will all catch a bid, but that's difficult to, to see that playing out. So I think uh, in terms of travel, look, the, the currency is not going to really impact the the outcome. It's where you stay, it's what you fly, and, and it's what you spend your money on. And where you sit on the plane. That's the determining <laughs> factor of the cost. A couple of cents on the currency is not going to really matter either way, I think. Totally agree. What is really forefront of my mind as we close out this year is we saw, as you've said, that the US did a great job of being really aggressive at hiking throughout the year, right? And in a response, the safe haven was the, the US dollar. So the flip side, if rates fall aggressively, if and when that happens, maybe it's next year towards Christmas or whenever, 2024, do you think the dollar will follow? Yeah, I, th- I think so. So, I mean, interest rate differentials are only one part of the puzzle. It's, you know, there's obviously times in history where that's real driver, like at the moment, but there's other times in history, the, the Aussie dollar just follows the iron ore price. It's almost like one for one. So, you know, I'm not sure why the market focuses on one at sometimes and one on the, at other times. I, I, I couldn't tell you. Even though I've been studying, I remember doing a paper at university about about currency a long, long time ago. So I've been looking at this issue for a long, long time. I still haven't quite worked it out. But I think, yeah, the interest rate differential will be one of the key drivers of the currency going forward. 
Now, before we hear your top picks from last year, we kind of just want to set the scene about what you're potentially expecting in next Australian corporate earnings season in February, March. Do you actually think that we're potentially in for more earnings downgrades overall uh, for Australian listed companies? Yeah, I, I think the short answer to that, Felicity, is yes. Not because I think the, the economy is disastrous or anything like that. I just think expectations are way too high. Um, analysts still have companies growing their profits um, globally by six to seven percent next year, and most you know most macro commentators suggest the world's going to be in recession next year, which means you know low to negative growth for most companies. Uh, some companies will have significantly negative growth. So there's a big mismatch between what macro people like me who are looking at the big picture are, are talking about company earnings and what analysts you know, seeing they're doing the, the bottom-up stuff are coming with. So that, that gap's quite significant at the moment. And, you know, look, the economists could all be wrong and the stock analysts could be right and maybe next year's going to be really, really good and everyone's going to grow their profits by 10%. I suggest it's probably around the other way. So I think expectations are too high and I think a lot of companies will, will disappoint because they'll come out with not so much the number but the outlook statement. And, you know, we've all been in markets long enough to know about it. It's not, it's not necessarily the number they're on the day, it's more about the outlook and the and the current trading conditions because that's the stuff we can't see. The company can see it, but we can't see it. So they give us an insight into how the year started, how the first six weeks of the financial year are, are going or the new year are going, and what they're seeing in terms of their order book. And that's kind of where I think the the reality of a really tough consumer market next year is going to dawn. And um, we've started, some stocks have priced it in, as, as we talked about, but a lot of companies haven't. So, you know, Woolworths is on 25 times earnings. It makes no sense. We're going into a, a big slowdown in consumer spending. Why are people paying 25 times for a retailer? It makes no sense. So, I think I think there's some, some, um, some op- there'll be some opportunities next year to, to maybe look at those companies, but I think the, the next earnings season is going to be a, a pretty rough one. That's it. So I guess that's the first quarter, right? So build up your cash on the side at the moment coming into the end of the year and kind of take profits in this little bear market rally um, while you can. Yeah, the, the bears have no shares, right? So you don't succeed as an investor by staying out of the market, right? And that's a real a real, really important lesson to know. Look, if you invested in the share market over long periods of time, you make about 9% a year, right? So every year out of the market, the odds of you, you know, you're going to lose 9%. So be be invested. And if you're going to be out of the market, don't be out of the market for too long. And don't have this problem that a lot of investors have. If you've sold it for a dollar, and you sat on the sidelines and it's gone up to a dollar ten, dollar twenty, you wait for it to come back to a dollar again. It's not going to come back to a dollar again. It's going to keep going. And you know, all these people that sold Whitehaven at two dollars, now it's ten and all that sort of stuff. Um, you're just better off having a broadly diversified portfolio. We mostly in the markets and then you're listening to, to you know your advice is there's times to lean out and times to lean in and now's the time to lean out take some cash and as we said there'll be some really good opportunities next year that's right we always stay invested but we do take profits when they arise and have a little bit of dry powder so that we can actually take advantage of these dips right and like minor corrections that we might have the early next year now if our listeners did listen to your stock pitches last year martin when we ended the episode they'd be up and hopefully they've taken profits along the way. So just to recap, you pitched in the ASX Top 100 the following three names. Within Energy, you went with Santos over Woodside if you had to pick one. 
Santos one-year performance is about 13.88%. Let's round it up to 14. We like round numbers. Uh, but Woodside one year is nearly 70% upside. In So not sure if you're uh, kicking yourself there with that one. Well, Candice, he actually did say that he had Santos and Woodside in the portfolio. So he actually had both. He just preferred Santos over Woodside. Correct. Correct. But anyways, both killer energy trades, that one. And then Transport, you went with Transurban, which was also pitched just recently at the Stone Hearts and Mind conference. Um, that's up pretty much flat for the year. Um, but you have obviously collected a dividend payment throughout the year because it is an income stock and Brambles also up about 16% for the year. So all in the green, well done. I guess my question for you is, do you still have that preference in the energy sector or has it changed throughout the year? Yeah, good question. So not not a bad performance, I think. If, if you, you know, average those out, you've probably done, what, 10, 12% or something. When the market's down too and, and um, there's another uh, publication called Livewire and they did a stock picking thing at the start of last year or the end of uh, last year, sorry, and the average stock was down 20%. So we've done we've done pretty well. Uh, let's, let's see if we can do that next year. But yeah, to your question on energy, I mean, obviously energy was the is the poison and the cure is the is the the phrase we're using this year is like it's the poison because it causes a lot of inflation and and uh, and therefore central banks have to put up rates therefore it causes a recession. So when you get a spike in oil prices, it's usually followed by a recession. And this current environment looks exactly like that. So we wanted to own oil just in case it kept going up and kept going up and kept going up and doing more and more damage to the future of your portfolio. So it was the poison. So you had to have an allocation. Things have changed a little bit. It's obviously, you know, the situation in Russia and Ukraine is becoming becoming complicated. The Russians can now sell oil under a cap. You know, they're coming back on stream. Global growth is slowing, which is impacting demand for oil. Um, you know, the OPEC is mucking around with production cuts, which is a bit odd. So there's a lot of moving parts with oil. I still think it has a place in the portfolio, but probably not as compelling as it was 12 months ago. It made a lot of sense to have energy. Um, there is still a risk that energy goes nuts again, i.e. we get, um, you know, an escalation of conflict in the Ukraine um, and uh, energy markets become unstable or the, you know, the Europeans run through their gas supplies a lot faster than people think because it's cold winter and, you know, we've got shortages again and all, the oil price and the gas price can spike again. So all of those things can still happen. So it, it still makes sense to have a healthy weighting. You know, we're thinking somewhere between 5 and 10% of your portfolio in the energy sector. And again, we'll probably go back to those those two names, but probably not as as uh, as compelling as it was a year ago. Yeah, and I agree with you 100%. And we talk a lot about Assurance Partners, the rise of new energy as well. So have you got any names that you're liking in that thematic? We're probably into my second uh, stock pick here, but um, we really like the uh, EV story, electrical vehicle. There's a little bit of speculation currently that Tesla's cutting back production in China because demand's not strong, but they've come out and denied that overnight. But, you know, as... 4,800 electric vehicles were sold last month in Australia. It's a pitifully small number and it's going to escalate. It's going to go to 100,000, right? At some point in the future, it'll all be EVs. So we're going from 5,000 a month to 100,000 a month in Australia, right? So multiply that around the world. There are going to be hundreds of millions or tens of millions, sorry, of, of EVs produced every year. And we just don't have the materials for that. So we're going to have to find the materials for that. We're going to have to innovate. We're going to have to have better... Um, you know, better fuel systems, better 
bat- batteries, etc. But they're all going to use stuff that's in Australia, whether it's nickel, cobalt, copper, lithium, graphite, rare earths. They need lots and lots and lots of that stuff. So once again, Australia is the lucky country. Yeah, it was wheat for a while, it was wool for a while, it was iron ore for a while, it was coal for a while, and now it's battery raw materials. So we've got a lot of them in, in our market. There's, a, there's six stocks in the ASX 100. Um, there's two in rare earths being Aluka and Linus, and then there's four in, in lithium and other and nickel and so forth. So you've got Independence Group, which is lithium and nickel. You've got Pilbara, which is um, lithium. You've got Allchem, which is lithium. You've got Mineral Resources, which is iron ore, uh, some services and lithium as well. So Pilbara is the, the one we own in our portfolio, and that's the another topic. Look, it's already up 65% this year. In fact, if you pick the low and the high of the year, it's probably 100%. So this is not for the faint-hearted, this, this stock. But I just think over time, the, the lithium price has to stay high to encourage new production to come on stream. And it's not like um, gold where you just dig it out of the ground and process it. These these um, mines take a decade to get up, up to stream. It's really, really complicated metallurgically. So it's not that easy just to find it and, and stick it on a boat. Um, and to get it to battery grade, it's it's got to be a specific kind of uh, lithium product. So I think that space, Australia's really well placed you can buy an Explorer, and that's really where you can make a lot of money. But for our clients, ASX 100, find a producer that owns 100% of the mine and does its own marketing, and that's what Pilbara is. So it's already up 65% this year. It's been one of the best performers in the ASX, but but I think it's a stock I want to own. And you know, not knowing a start and end point for when li- the lithium cycle plays out, I want to own Pilbara. So PLS is a ticker. That, that's that's a stock for the new energy economy. Okay, amazing. So PLS is one of your stock picks for 2023. Now, MINS had an absolute cracker lately. You know, it was hit over $90 and IGO has also been an absolutely smashing the market. So what are your other two ideas or themes for 2023? Yeah, well, one was James Hardy. So I think, I think the theme is that it's a soft landing and or the recession's already priced in. So there are, you know, building material stocks are really, really cyclical, apart from maybe mining stocks. They're probably the most cyclical part of the market. And and as we know, interest rates impact housing probably faster than everything else, right? As, as you were saying earlier, Felicity, you get your you get your statement from the bank and all of a sudden the interest rate's gone up. It's pretty it's a pretty blunt instrument and it tends to hit housing. So James Hardy's considered a US housing stock because it's the biggest housing market that it's exposed to. It's also all through Asia, Australia, UK, Europe, etc. But it's considered US housing. So you look at US housing and it's collapsing. It's absolutely collapsing right now. New home starts are falling. Lots of ha- home builders are struggling. So it's like, why am I why am I investing in this? Because the share price has already reflected a lot of that. The earnings have come down a long way. The share price has come down a long way. At some point, that's going to level out and pick up. And I don't know when the right time is, but um, James Hardy's the one. So we've got James Hardy, Pilbara. The third one is Domino's. So again, thinking back to this Domino's. long duration, uh, long duration uh, asset. So Domino's is a, a significant um Fast, um, you know, fast, quick service restaurant. It's it's uh, building up its franchises. It, it's acquired the one third of the German franchise it didn't own, and it's adding other franchises around the world. So it's part of a global system, the Domino system, and it's a very successful operator. Now it's been smashed this year 
two things really. One is food price inflation. So just think of the price of cheese, the cost of cheese at the supermarket. So Domino is one of the biggest uh, users of cheese in Australia. So it's been smashed on on a lot of the raw ingredients. Now, they've tried to keep their prices uh, pretty stable because it is obviously a, a value uh, proposition. But the other thing is just drivers getting getting people to get the pizza from the store to your house, which they guaranteed to do in 30 minutes. So that's part of their price promise. That's been really hard for them to do just because drivers. But that's starting to loosen up. I think there's one uh, ride company that, that shut down in Australia, 15,000. Yeah, Deliveroo. Yeah, Deliveroo. Deliveroo, Deliveroo shut down. So there's a whole bunch of people driving for Deliveroo who can now drive for Domino's and others. So I think those two issues go from being headwinds to being tailwinds next year. But the most important thing really is just the valuation. As I said, the stock's down 60% this year. Their profits aren't down 60. They're nothing like that. And I, But I think there has been some headwinds in terms of their earnings, which we should see recover next year. But more importantly is that rating. It's a quality global growth business. They they execute really, really well. Good management team. So I think, I think that's stock you want to own uh, for next year. Pays a dividend. And we all love a good pizza. Don't we? we Music to our ears. Good to <laughs> That's hear. That's it. Well, that was fantastic. All right, to summarise, Pilbara, PLS, James Hardy, the ticker for that one, JHX and Domino's, one of our favourite stocks here on Talk Money to Me, DMP. Now, to finish off the awesome chat with you today, Martin, we already have asked you the famous question that we, we do, which is tea, coffee or tequila. So we're going to throw another one at you. If you were to pick any ASX company for you to be and why, as in the business profile that best suits your personality, what company would that be? So I'm the stock. The stock. The stock. Yeah, you're the stock. You're the company. It embodies me. Uh, I'd have to say Treasury Wine Estates because I'm like a fine <laughs> bottle of wine. Love I it. Just, I just get better as I get older. <laughs> so Absolutely. Good. That was a fantastic answer. Well, thank you so much, Martin, for coming on the show. That was such a great episode. And we really look forward to getting you back on next year. It's been a pleasure. Talk Money to Me is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Talk Money to Me are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Mates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find the ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Talk Money to Me acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.